Thanks, Ellie, for reading our passage this morning. Such a great job. And thanks also to Scott. And uh, I can't keep track of all the names of the people he's bringing into his videos now. But thank you to him and to Michael, as well as Sarah and David and Hannah, just for leading us in this service so far. And um, I, like them, I'm excited. I'm excited about this morning. I'm excited about this new series and this new theme. So uh, thank you for being with us online. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Joel. I am the Youth and Young Adults Pastor here at One Hope. And uh, yes, it's a bit of a different backdrop. Once again, I found myself in Nullamboy in East Arnhem Land where Joe is working uh, for a few months. And so I've uh, tagged along. I've been working uh, here on the deck uh, out in the sun. It's been a bit nice and being able to get involved with the Christian community a bit as well here. And um, yeah, we're just sort of taking it week by week to see what happens. But um, know that you are definitely all in my thoughts and prayers and I uh, miss home and I miss being with you all and we all look forward to that day where we can be together again. And uh, the Psalms uh, really help capture some of those feelings, some of those emotions. As Scott said, they're songs, they are expressive, they are emotive and they help capture some of that and bring it towards God. So I'm excited to go through it. Uh, over the next number of weeks, including this reading plan. Hopefully you've all received that. If not, it'll be on our page. It's on our website as well. Over the next 50 days, we're going to be reading a psalm a day. As a whole church, kids, youth, young adults, adults, we want everyone to be joining in on this, reading a psalm a day. Uh, We'll be sharing different things on Facebook to help encourage this, maybe images, songs, maybe some videos and reflections. Um, But really... We want to engage with these psalms and to uh, just dive into God's word together as a whole church. Um, We're going to be preaching on the first seven psalms um, as we go through that. Uh, Maybe in your life groups, you'll touch on it as well, in your families, in your homes. And I want to encourage you, I want to invite you to be a part of that over the next 50 days that we'll just immerse ourselves in God's word. And so this morning we're starting Psalm 1, as you would have heard, and, and, and over the next sort of six, seven weeks, we'll be tackling the first seven. Um, other than the first two Psalms, they're, they're all Psalms of David, so there's a bit of a continuity amongst them. They touch on a number of different themes, but there's this constant thread through them all of this sense of turning to God, trusting in Him, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, whether it's success or strife, we see David, we see the psalmist turning to God, trusting him. And so we have this title of God, our refuge, which I think not only captures the hearts of the psalms, I think it captures where we're at as well in this moment of actually we just need to turn to God, let him be our refuge in this storm. Psalm 1 and 2 in particular are a bit, little bit different. They're, they're anonymous. They don't have a, a specific author linked to them. And they almost sit as this introduction to the whole book of the Psalms. They introduce two key themes that run all throughout. Uh, Psalm 1 focuses on the law or the word or uh, yeah the Torah. And Psalm 2 focuses on the rule and the reign of God and his messianic king. And these themes we follow all throughout the Psalms. And so um, today we're going to focus on Psalm 1, next week Psalm 2. And the reason that I think they're particularly linked is that they start and end with this word blessed. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the one who delights in the law. 
And then Psalm 2 finishes with, Blessed is the one who finds refuge in the King. And so over these next couple of weeks, maybe we're going to, I believe we're going to get a bit of a glimpse of what it means to, to be blessed and to live a life with God that's worth living. And so this morning, Psalm 1, three things that I have for us. We have a warning, we have an invitation, and we have a promise. So first off, let's look at the warning. There is a warning here in this passage on the way of the wicked. Now, it's a little strange to begin on a negative note. It's not what we usually do, Uh, particularly in our culture. We sort of usually do the sandwich method of like positive, the tiny negative, and then positive again. Um, But this psalm opens up with a strong and clear warning on the way of the wicked. Imagine starting a songbook and starting with this negative, like, do not do this, do not do that. It's an interesting way but we can't like we can't skip over it we can't pretend that it's not there and a couple things i want us to note on this warning the first thing is that it is a progression have a look at verse one says blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers this is a picture of progression Walking, standing, sitting. It's a movement. It's a downward spiral. It, it is a negative progression. And it ends in this place of sitting, which is a picture throughout the Bible of intimacy and, and depth. But in this case, it's with the wicked. The psalmist makes it very clear that the way of the wicked is one of movement. There is, there, there's no such thing as an innocent or a casual conversation with sin. There's no such thing as a fling or just a taste or I'm just getting my feet wet a little bit. Sin by its nature is always going somewhere. It is always moving you on this downward progression. Have a look at the other words that we see used it says the counsel of the wicked the way of sinners the seat of scoffers you know the counsel of the wicked it's it's something you hear it's it's counsel it's advice it's it's sort of this voice that says why don't do this but then it moves to the way of sinners it becomes a an action a behavior a habit even it becomes a way of living But it doesn't even stop there. It then moves to the seat of scoffers. It's no longer just sinful behavior, but it's it's this movement that lands at mocking God, at scoffing at the idea of righteousness. And we see that in our culture where it seems to be that people are no longer happy just being non-Christian. But in many ways, we see this movement of anti-Christian, of people who are scoffing at the idea of faith, scoffing at the idea of religion and of righteousness. But these words here are not written to our culture or our society. They are written to God's people. And so the question for us this morning is, are you aware of the danger? Psalm 1 starts with a very clear warning because there is serious danger here. The way of the wicked is one of progression. It is always moving you somewhere. You know, 
I've been able to explore a little bit around here. We went to a couple of beaches and every beach you go to has this very clear sign and it scares the crap out of me because it says sh crocs, sharks and jellyfish. And I'm not a huge fan of the water as is. And then you add the trifecta to it and I'm just like well and truly happy to stay a hundred meters away. There's a serious danger in the water. And so there is a very clear warning sign. And here we see the same thing. All sin is dangerous because by its nature, it is leading you somewhere. And just like the sharks and the crocs and the jellyfish in the water, it is a life threatening situation. And so we need to heed the warning because this sin is destructive and it leads us away from God. Are you aware of the danger? Are you aware of the slippery slope? And how are you going in fleeing from that direction? The way of the wicked is one of progression. The second thing about the way of the wicked is that it will perish. It's a path that leads to nothing. Have a look at verse 4 to 6, the end part of this psalm. It says, The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. Imagine hearing this as a song and that being the last line that you hear and it just sort of reverberate in your mind. The way of the wicked will perish. You know, it, is it is important that we understand that from an eternal perspective. You know, there, there are many verses that talk about this, but 1 Corinthians 3 is just a really clear one. It says each one's work will become manifest. It will become known for the day, the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. The Bible makes it like super clear that our lives will be tested when Jesus returns on the day of judgment and only things of eternal value will hold their worth. Everything else will perish. And so Jesus naturally says in Matthew 6, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because they're the things that will last. They're the things that are important. Because the way of the wicked will perish. There is nothing there of eternal value. Is that reflected in your life? Is that reflected in, in my life? You know, and the thing about this way of the perishing is that it's not just understood eternally, but it's even a reality for us here on earth. Think about what Jesus said in that, in that scripture, like our treasures on earth perish, <laughs> moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Like our treasures on earth are not safe, they're not satisfying, they don't even sustain, they don't even last our time here. Our earthly treasures, they fall and they fade. And so the way of the wicked will perish also because earthly treasures are a terrible refuge in a real storm. We say that earthly treasures are a terrible refuge in an earthly storm. 
you know, your job, your car, your home, your hobbies, your friends, your favorite TV show, your favorite sports stars or games, your favorite comfort food, like all of these things fail to truly like rescue us from the storms of life. They might provide a distraction. <laughs> they might provide, you know, a bit of distance from the issue, but they often will leave us disappointed. Think about your life. What have you been relying on in these last few months? And have they disappointed you? You know, maybe you feel like God's disappointed you. <laughs> maybe you've been crying out and you've been not getting the answers that you're after. Maybe you felt like God has let you down. And if so, like, I mean, we don't have time to dive into it now, but I want to encourage you to join us and read Psalms for 50 days. Because the psalmist time and times again cries out in disappointment and in anger and in pain and in frustration and he turns to God and he wrestles with that. I encourage you to, to seek God in those disappointments and in those struggles. But nevertheless, I firmly believe that earthly treasures are a terrible refuge in a real storm. Tim Keller, he reflects on our culture uh, and he says that the aim of our culture at the moment is to free the individual self. That's, that's, that's his quote. And in that, it has led to this current moment where this is what he says. All values are relative. All relationships are transactional. All identities are fragile. And all supposed sources of fulfillment are disappointing. And so, ironically, we are still not free. Our culture has been pushing and saying like you can be free and it's, ironically we're not he says we're not free objectively as local communities and families decline as public and private bureaucracies impenetrable and unresponsive they dominate our lives and we're not free subjectively as we experience inner loneliness and enslaving addictions that's a big quote and you're probably going to come back to this point of the video and maybe read over it again but in a simple way, what he's saying is that our world has promised so much and it fails to deliver. Why? Because the way of the wicked will perish. We, we need a refuge in this storm and the world promises one, but it doesn't deliver. And so instead, God invites us to a different way. God invites us to a different path, one of life, one of love. see the second part of our sermon this morning is the invitation which is the way of the Lord in this passage we see it centered on the law of the Lord those who delight in it those who meditate upon it those are the ones who are blessed those are the ones who are like a tree that are planted those who delight in the law and those who meditate upon it you see, the law for the Israelites was, was more than rules and regulations. It was more than just written words on a scroll. They were more than just the scriptures. You see, the law usually meant the Torah or the first five books of the Bible, which includes lots of rules and regulations. Don't get me wrong, but it's more about their story. You read Genesis through Deuteronomy and you get this whole story of the origin of the Israelites and how God chose them and how he rescued them and then how he set them apart from other nations. 
The law is their story. It's their worldview. It's their way of life. And so for us too, we can understand the law in that same way. That it's, it's a story about how God chose us and how God rescues us and He set us apart to live for Him. Like He's done the same thing for us. And we see that all throughout the New Testament, that we aren't just saved from something, but we're saved to something. And in our wilderness journey, as we head towards the heavenly promised land, like he has given us a law, he has given us a way of life, he has given us an example in Jesus to follow. And so as we read law in this context with New Testament lens, uh, I think it's safe to read it as God's way of life which we understand through God's word. And so in this sermon, I'll sort of interchange between law and way of God and the word of God and use them interchangeably and hopefully understand why. But two things for us to consider here when we think about the law or the way of Jesus. First thing is, do you delight in it? The invitation of this psalm is super clear. Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law. Like this is more than intellectual knowledge, this is more than just behavioral obedience, this is more than living out biblical values in your home or in your family. This is more than knowing right from wrong. This is about having a positive and deep emotional response to the way of the Lord. That we delight in living for God. Think about that for a moment. Do you delight in living for Jesus? Like in my own life, I, 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 on an intellectual level, even a, like a philosophical level, like I know I believe that God's way is wonderful. That's the best way that we could live. But I often miss that on an emotional level. I don't often portray that in the, you know, the eagerness I have to obey and to serve. I don't always delight in God's way. You know, we often portray following Jesus as a burden, as an inconvenience, as an, an interruption to my way of life. And yet in 1 John it says that his commands are not burdensome. That is not how we're meant to live. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. His way is good. This isn't meant to be a downcast. Oh man, I've got to trust for God. I'm going to live for him. Like this is the worst thing ever. But this is meant to be this joyful, delightful. I get to trust in God and I get to live for him. Like that is the response of delighting in the law of the Lord. Which is totally foreign to us, let's be honest. You know, our sinful nature is one that is selfish, one that wants to be autonomous and independent from God. Not only that, but our culture conditions us to reject authority, to despise those who tell us what to do, whether that's our parents or our boss or our partner or even our politicians. People tell us what to do and we shrink back, we push back, we do not want a bar of it. And my prayer is that God would actually change our hearts, that we would actually delight in his law, that we would actually trust him enough to joyfully accept what he has called us to do. 
Think about a child who is asked to clean their room. You know, I haven't done any extensive research here, nor do I have kids of my own, but I'm pretty confident in saying that nearly always it is a negative response. You ask a child to clean their room and it is nearly always a negative response. (laughs) Why? It's not exciting. It takes effort. They don't see the point. Maybe there's some ingrained rebellion against their parents in there. No one wants to do it. But imagine a child who hears their parents say, go clean your room and jumps and leaps and goes, yes, of course, I would do it. Why, like, what would do, well, one, they would trust their parents. They would believe that, you know what, my parents have my best interests at heart. And maybe they know some things that I don't know. Maybe they know that if I don't clean my room, there's going to be some things that fester in the dark corners. There are going to be some growing things that I don't really want to know about. Maybe my parents do know best. And so I'm going to actually joyfully listen to what they have to say and go for it. Like imagine if that was us with God. You see, it's not so much about the commands or the instructions, but it's about the person giving it. So it's not really about, do you think, you know, it's a good idea to love your enemy. It's really about, do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God is faithful and that he is one of life, one of righteousness, one of, you know, joy and hope and peace? And and do you believe that God is worth following? See, this is the law of the Lord. And because it's the Lord Yahweh who gave this law, the Israelites, you know, at their best, desired to go and follow it. Because they knew who it came from. And in this world of wickedness and perishing, our God provides us a path, a way, filled with his presence. And so let us delight in following him. The second question for us to ponder around the law is whether we meditate upon it. The psalm invites us to meditate on the law day and night. Now this is before they had written access, uh, they had access to the written scriptures. So people had to learn uh, through what they heard. And so there were songs that were sung, there were stories that were told, there was memorizing, there was going over it again and again in your head so that it became ingrained. You know, you had to memorize the scriptures and tell them because you didn't have access to what we have today. This is like, this is unprecedented. The fact that we have the Bible in so many translations, in so many languages, we have it on our phones for free. You know, it is incredible and it really it's, it's a miracle but in that i think we've also lost the art of true biblical meditation now meditate in the bible is not sort of the eastern meditation that fills our current age it is not a mindfulness exercise it's not emptying your mind of negative thoughts and, and finding inner stillness no biblical meditation is filling your mind with the truth it's about chewing on it it's about letting the words sink in. It is a practice of slowing down. Letting the truth actually penetrate our hearts. Yet we live in this world where we find a verse of the day, it pops up our phone, we read it, and then we move on to the next thing as quick as we can because we're so hurried, we're so busy. 
you know, this reading plan that we're going through in the next 50 days, you know, I want to encourage you that that's a time for you to slow down, to meditate upon God's Word. You know, most of the Psalms you can read in a few minutes and you can open it, read it, tick it off, move to the next one. And I mean, that's good, but I feel like the, minim- the impact will be minimal. What if you actually took the time to actually slow down and to meditate upon the words? To read it slowly. Maybe read it multiple times. Maybe read it in the morning and read it in the night. That you'd actually chew on it. You'd actually enjoy the meal. Maybe you'd change the pronouns. Put your name in there. Maybe put the name of someone else in there and make it a prayer. Maybe you can read different translations. You know, we're going to be sharing different things on social media and I encourage you to engage with them, to actually take a time to pause and to stop and to reflect on the psalm of that day. Maybe you write out a verse, keep it in your pocket. Maybe try and memorize parts of it. Maybe share your thoughts with others in your home or in your life group or just message it to someone. Like, Make these words the central part of our meditations of that day. The things that we chew on, the things that we stew on, may it be God's word and not anything else. You know, I believe this is so needed for us, particularly in our day and age. You know, the Barna Research Group, they did studies on millennials and they put in this wonderful book called Faith for Exiles. If you have kids or teenagers, I highly recommend that book about navigating our culture and particularly technology. But they found that the typical 15 to 23 year old, uh, Christian 15 to 23 year old, spends 291 hours a year on average taking in spiritual content. 291 hours, which sounds like a lot, but really it's under six hours a week, less than an hour a day. Compare that to the time that they spent on screen media, on their devices watching TV shows or YouTube or gaming or movies or social media, they spend on average 2,767 hours a year on screen media as opposed to 291 of spiritual input. 10 times as much on their phones, on their screens than they are taking in spiritual input. Now, this is not a shot at young people because I know enough young, I know enough adults, I spend enough time at, around adults to know that uh, this is not a young person problem. I know plenty of adults that scroll Facebook much more than their children do. The reality is, is that our screens are shaping us, our culture is discipling us, and we need to turn to God and allow His Word to slowly transform us. It takes time. It takes effort. It's not always easy. It's a discipline. This is not always going to produce these magical moments of spirituality. Like Most of the time, it's a bit mundane. But we need to meditate upon God's Word because our culture is bombarding us. You know, I know this is a little easier for me to say because I'm away from it all, but I want to encourage you to reduce your news intake, to retreat a bit from social media, to reduce your entertainment time. You know, we're not called to meditate upon the movements of the world. We are called to meditate upon God's word. 
you know, I know what it's like, you know, in those, uh, when I was in Melbourne, like I was watching every news conference, I was waiting to see when the borders would open, I was reading every opinion piece, trying to figure out, trying to navigate the seas that we were in. But what if that's doing more damage to our souls than good? You know, this is a a bit bold for me, but I'm going to like, seriously, I think we need to stop meditating upon our world. Stop meditating upon the news. Let's meditate upon God's word. That is where we're called to. That's where we're invited in to delight in and to meditate upon it day and night. Of course, we are called to be wise and faithful, and so it's important to know what's happening. But, you know, the numbers aren't going to change whether you know them or not. What if we turn to God's word? He is our refuge and our strength, our ever-present help in time of trouble. And so may we turn to him day and night and chew and meditate upon his word. Because in the end, after this warning, And in this invitation, the central, I think, message of this psalm is the promise. Psalm 1 teaches that the way of delighting and meditating upon the law, the way of God is one of blessing. Blessed is the one. It literally means happy or content. Happy or content is the one who delights upon the law. Heed the warning, accept the invitation, and know that it leads to a promise. It leads to blessing, to happiness and contentment. And we get a picture of what this looks like. It says, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. You see, God sees this way of the wicked that is perishing and he raises it a life of flourishing, a life where there is a firm foundation, where there is a supply of what we need and there is fruitfulness to bless others. Now, once again, we understand blessing in a way that is heavily shaped by our culture. And so it's very material. It's very earthly. And particularly in the New Testament, we see that it is flipped on its head. Jesus talks about a blessing that is way more eternal and heavenly than material. Have a look at Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, the start of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus outlines those who are blessed. It's the poor, the mourning, the meek, the merciful, the pure, the persecuted, the justice seekers, the peacemakers. And look at what they receive. This is what Jesus says those people receive. He says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, They shall be comforted. They inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called children of God. Great is their reward in heaven. There's almost nothing material about that. Jesus is saying this happiness, this contentment, this blessing that comes is not one of accumulating or achieving things on earth, but it is about knowing God. It's about, you know, being called his children, about seeing him, being satisfied, receiving mercy. These are the sort of things that last forever. Far longer than the house or the car 
or the fulfillment of your dreams. God says that, you know, in Ephesians 3, 21, it says God can do immeasurably more than we ask or think. This is a far greater blessing. You know, think about God's way of life. He calls us to be pure in heart in that passage. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, pure in heart, you know, to be pure in our thoughts and our actions, you know, according to our world, that is suppressive and therefore it is oppressive. It's limiting because I can't fulfill all my desires. I can't do what I want. And I mean, who cares about my thoughts because I don't hurt anyone. But Jesus says, no, 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 like blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. They will begin to see God in the people that they interact with because they're no longer treating that relationship as a transaction, but they're treating that person as a person, as an image of God. And so that purity in heart, we begin to have these unique and special interactions with people. We begin to see God at work in the people around us. And that leads to, that can lead to these interactions that have eternal value. That's worth far more than any sort of impure exchange might be. God's way is a way of blessing. I firmly believe that is the best way that we can live. So may we delight in it, may we meditate upon it, and may we obey, may we follow, may we go with it. I believe that we can find satisfaction, meaning and purpose, hope and joy, peace and comfort. But it's not found in the way of the wicked. It is found in the way of the Lord. So heed the warning, accept the invitation and hold on for that promise. You know, at the end of this psalm, it sheds light on what blessing looks like. It says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, if you understand scripture, you know that in Romans 3, it says no one is righteous, not even one. It says we all fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. That no one is righteous. And so you think about this and you go, well, so the Lord knows no one. No, no. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died and he rose again. So that our sins would be forgiven, that our righteousness would be not seen. Instead, we are given his righteousness through faith by his grace. It's not won. It's not worked for. It is received as a gift that we can be seen as righteous through Jesus. And the beauty of that, according to this psalm, is that God knows us. He sees us. He knows the way of the righteous. He knows every thought, he knows every step, every tear, every cry, every pain, every struggle, every victory, every step, every every action, every inaction. God sees it and he knows it all. And even before all time, he knew it and he still did what he did. He still carried through on his promise. He still came and he still lived and he still died. He still sent his spirit and he still walks with us even though he knows us all. He says, I love you. My grace is for you and I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. 
the God, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He sees it all and he is with you. And so I want to pray that you would know that truth this morning, that you would know that you are not alone. God is not distant. He never leaves. He never forsakes. And so may we turn to God, our refuge, once again. May we abandon the way of the wicked. May we delight and meditate upon the law of the Lord. And may we trust him to lead us to life, blessing and abundance. Amen.